Let's read Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 20. We'll pray and then dive into our passage and our teaching. So this is Jesus. We're reading about how he and his disciples are traveling to this new area in and around the Sea of Galilee. We read, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often bound, been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it into the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they begged, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him and said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis just how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your word. We need it desperately. We need it because it is the only good news that we have in a world that is filled with darkness and despair and loneliness and sin. We need your word because by your word, Lord, our souls and our spirits are fed. So would you now, God, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to us? Would you shine a light on it that we might understand it, that we might be convinced by it, that our hearts might be changed and our lives transformed by the power of your word? And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, before we dive into our teaching on this passage this morning, I, I want to just kind of reorient us where we're back in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark throughout the fall. And what we've been saying about Mark is the best way to think about it is as a biography. It's a biography of the life of Jesus. 
And unlike, you know, modern biographies that you pick up today, Mark's different because Mark is announcing a specific message, what the Bible calls the gospel or the good news. It's a biography that announces the good news of Jesus Christ. And just as a way to conceptualize the gospel, think of a coin, right? A coin has two sides. And one side of that coin is the gospel or the good news of who Jesus is. It's a good way to start about thinking about the gospel. Who is Jesus? And as we've seen throughout our study of Mark, we've seen in vivid detail the good news of who Jesus is. We've heard repeatedly over and over again this good news that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God himself. And we saw this from the very opening pages of the gospel of Mark because Jesus is coming out to this man named John the Baptist And as he goes to John the Baptist, he has the goal of being baptized. And Jesus is baptized with other people. And as he's being baptized, he comes out of the water and he looks up into the sky. And we're told the heavens are torn open and the spirit of God begins to descend on Jesus. And a voice comes from heaven. This is Mark chapter one, verse 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That is good news. That's good news that Jesus is the beloved son of God, that Jesus is God and has come to live with us, that God has come to rescue us. That's part of the good news. But we've also seen repeatedly throughout the gospel of Mark more about who Jesus is, that he's also truly human. And Mark does this in a really unique and remarkable way. He, he paints Jesus as the second Adam or the better Adam. Remember Adam, the very first human created by God? He fails in the Garden of Eden. He gives in to Satan's temptation. But Jesus, we see, where every place Adam failed, where you fail, where you fail as well in your relationship with God, Jesus has succeeded. Jesus is the true and better Adam. And again, that is good news because what that means is that Jesus has obeyed where you disobey. Jesus is perfect where you are flawed, where you are broken. Jesus is for you what you can never be for yourself. And here's why that's good news. At first, you might think that's really hard to grasp. But as a pastor, I regularly hear this. And I I hear it from people from all walks of life, people who are sick, people who are young, people who are struggling in their life, people who are doing well in their life, they repeatedly come to me and they they often feel like in their relationship with God that they're not doing enough. They often say to me, "I, I just don't feel like I'm doing enough for God. I don't feel like I'm sold out enough for God. And friends, that's exactly why you need the good news. Because you never do enough. And you never can do enough. Jesus has done enough. Jesus is the one who is God who came to earth to be perfect in your place, to live the perfect human life that you could not live and to die the death you deserve to die. So when you think of the gospel, that's the first side of the coin, who Jesus is. He's truly God who became man. And he did so, so he could be everything for you that you are not. But this morning, what I wanna do is I I wanna flip the coin. And I wanna look at the other side of the gospel, which is this, what Jesus came to do is also good news. And up to this point, I don't think there is a scene more graphic, more vivid, or more powerful than this passage 
that shows us Jesus coming to demonstrate his power and what he came to do, his power to save. So as we dive into this passage this morning, if you're taking notes, three points, three points that we're going to look through. First, we're going to look at the scene that Jesus enters into. Secondly, we're going to look at the salvation that Jesus brings. And thirdly, we're going to look at the response that Jesus receives. So those are our three points, the scene, the salvation, and the response. Diving in to the first point, the scene. Mark, he paints this graphic scene, doesn't he? If you're looking at your text, verses 1 and 2, we see Jesus comes to this country of the Gerasene. This is the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we read immediately in verse 2 that once Jesus is there, he steps out of the boat and he's met with this man, by this man, among the tombs who has an unclean spirit or he has a demon. Now, Jesus has faced demons before. We read about this actually in one of our earliest studies of the Gospel of Mark. We read that Jesus is teaching in this area known as uh, Capernaum. And as Jesus is teaching, all of a sudden, this spiritual world comes alive. And as Jesus is teaching in a synagogue, we read that a man with an unclean spirit cries out and he yells out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So see, this is not Jesus' first encounter with unclean spirits or demons or the powers of darkness, but this scene is unique. And here's why it's unique. Mark zooms in on just how powerful, just how vile, and how destructive the forces of evil and the force of these unclean spirits in this man. And you see that in verses three and four. We see, very first thing we see, the overwhelming power that these unclean spirits have over this man. And you can see it in these three negatives that come out. So beginning in verse three, we read of this man, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Nothing could subdue this man. You see that? This man has been tied up with iron shackles. These people have tried putting iron chains on this man, but he wrenches them apart. He shatters them to pieces. Nobody could subdue this man because he was just so powerful. Anybody seen that movie, movie Armistead? It was directed by Steven Spielberg. And there's this scene early on in the movie. It's the story of African slave traders who bring people over to America. And you have these men and women who are now slaves who have just been kidnapped from their homes. And they're tied foot to foot with these iron shackles and these iron chains. And these men who are these slave traders need to make the boat lighter in order to make time in order to get to the United States. And so what they decide to do is they decide to take these men and women who are tied together, who are already uh, powerless and they hadn't had a lot of food. So these are the weak ones who wouldn't receive a good reward and a good return. So what they do is they grab the first person in line and they toss them into the Atlantic Ocean. And because all these people are chained together one by one, they go and they plunge into the Atlantic Ocean. And you see these people, they, they want to get free. They're doing everything in their might to try and wrench these iron chains and shackles apart, but they can't. They can't do it. They're not strong enough to tear them apart. But here's this man. This man 
with so much demonic strength that he shatters and wrenches iron shackles and chains. No person could subdue him. This is the most powerful person you can imagine. In fact, in fact, you look at verse 3 there, and it has that word subdue. That's a, that's a Greek word. It's a word that's used in reference to subduing wild animals like lions or, or bears. But this man can't be subdued. His strength is too powerful. His strength is too much to overcome. Uh, it reminds me when I was a kid, uh, we used to sometimes be babysat by my aunt and uncle. Their names were uh, Christy and John, and they had this German shepherd who I've mentioned before. His name was Ruger. Great German shepherd, but he, he was a big dog, and we were terrified by Ruger. Well, I'm about seven or eight years old, and my uh, aunt and uncle say, well, why don't you take Ruger on a walk around the block? So I have Ruger here, right, who weighs probably twice as much as I did at the age, and you have the, one of these, uh, these leashes that has the extractable cord, and you can kind of stop it if you need to. Well, all of a sudden, Ruger sees a squirrel, okay? And the extractable cord starts going through, whizzing away. And I'm looking at him running toward this squirrel. And all of a sudden, with all of this strength of this German shepherd, he lurches forward and I fly through the air. This seven-year-old kid flying through the air, land on my stomach, and he is dragging me through the street. And all of a sudden, I try and push the little clicky thing, and as I do, the cord snaps into two. And so here's me and my brothers. We're walking and running, trying to get Ruger, and we're trying to hold on to this tiny little string. And we can't stop him, right? This is a German shepherd running after this squirrel. He got the squirrel, by the way, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> so I'm just going along for the ride. I can't stop him. That's, that's the scene here. You have to realize this man, iron chains, iron shackles, wrenched and shattered them apart, snapped them into two. Nobody could subdue him. And you see why he's so powerful in verse 9. In fact, this is something that's completely unprecedented in the Gospels. This is the most graphic scene we see of demonic possession. And you see it in verse 9. Jesus asked this man, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion for we are many. A Roman army, a legion in a Roman army was equivalent of 5,600 troops. So what Mark's trying to zoom in here on, what we're supposed to see is the grip of these unclean spirits, both in power and in number, resembled the overwhelming power of the Roman military and their sway over this minuscule area in Judah. This man is gripped by the power of evil. He is gripped by the power of evil. And you see this throughout the Bible, that there are real, dark, evil, spiritual forces in our world. The Apostle Paul speaks about it this way. He says to those who are followers of Jesus that they need to be on guard for the spiritual powers of evil. He, he encourages the church in Ephesus by saying, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And when we look at our world today, we can see this darkness. We, we can see this evil. I was looking at statistics that marked the year 2022, and these weren't good statistics. Uh, researchers have found that there has been a 120% increase in online recruitment for sex trafficking on Facebook and Instagram. 
You look back at the year 2022 and fentanyl now, this powerful drug, is now the leading cause of death among adults aged 18 to 45. And if you go back to the year 2005 and, and you track deaths among Americans from the year 2005 until the year 2022, you'll see that deaths related to heart disease, cancer, and stroke, those are decreasing. But then you look at a different category, what researchers call deaths of despair. These are deaths related to alcohol, drugs, suicide, they have been increasing year over year over year over year from 2005 until 2022. When you look at those kinds of statistics, we know what evil looks like. We know their power and how evil grips our world on a cosmic scale. All we have to do is look at the headlines in the newspaper. But here's this single man, one man gripped by this overwhelming power by a legion of unclean spirits. And it's concentrated in him alone so much so that nobody can subdue him. Nobody can hold him back. And Mark also, what he wants to do is not only show us this, this power that this evil has over this one man, but he also wants to show us how vile this scene is. This is hidden on us today, but if you were a Jewish person and you were reading this account, you would have noticed immediately how unclean that this account was. Remember, he's uh, possessed by these unclean spirits. Well, to be unclean meant that you couldn't worship God in the temple. It meant that you were separated from God's people. It meant that... You couldn't be a part of the people of God, and many things could make you unclean. Numbers chapter 19 says that if you go near a dead body, then you would be unclean for seven days. And then if you didn't clean yourself or go through ceremonial purification before those seven days, you would be completely cut off from the people. Then there was Leviticus chapter 11. We're told there that if a person ate pigs, he was unclean. Deuteronomy 14 said a person can't touch pigs. Then later tradition said you can't rear pigs. Later tradition also held that Gentiles, those who were not Jewish religiously and ethnically, they were unclean. So here you have Jesus meeting a man with powerful unclean spirits living among countless unclean tombs, surrounded by thousands of unclean pigs in an unclean Gentile territory. This scene to a Jewish person would have been utterly Utterly grotesque, odious, and foul. I was listening to a pastor recently, and he equated this to the Jewish version of Lord of the Rings. You know, in Lord of the Rings, when Sam and Frodo, they're going to Mordor, right? They have to destroy the ring, so they have to go to Mordor, and there's where Sauron lives, and they have to destroy the ring in Mount Doom, and they scale through these dark caves, and there's hardly any light as they're inching around. They're evading these disgusting orcs who kind of look like pigs, and they're snorting, and they're growling, and they're trying to eat them. And then you've got Shelob, this giant spider that's constantly following them, and these ring wraiths are swooping down as they're flying on the Nazgul. I've seen the movie, okay? <laughs> this, that's the description of this scene, it is utterly grotesque and vile and foul. And Mark is trying to paint this picture of this scene that we would be utterly repulsed by. But the third thing, and this is maybe the most concrete thing that we see that Mark is trying to zoom in on here, is just the utter destruction that the power of evil and the power of these unclean spirits have over this man. Here's the most powerful man on the planet. And you see, verse 5, he is utterly powerless against destroying himself. Night and day among the tombs, we read, 
And on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. His existence is one of personal and perpetual destruction and agony. He's seeking to destroy himself because he's possessed by these demons. One author, I think, puts it well. He says, in this story of possession, what is at issue is not merely sickness or psychosis, but a destruction and distortion of the divine likeness of man according to creation. The goal and purpose of Satan, his demons, evil, sin, and darkness is to utterly eradicate, destroy, distort, and unravel the God-given image and likeness of God in a person's life. In other words, their goal is to dehumanize through sin and darkness, to take what's distinctly human, the image of God in a person, and to so relegate that person to nothing more than an object of scorn and disrepute. That's how Satan, sin, and darkness always operate in a person's life. Always. That's how sin, Satan, and evil always operate, even on a cosmic scale. You think of the leader of Russia. The leader of Russia, in order to justify an invasion of the people of Ukraine, in order to do so, he doesn't refer to the Ukrainians as people made in God's image or even human beings. What does he refer to them as? Gnats. Nothing more than gnats, creatures to be smushed between your hands because evil and sin seek to destroy the image of God and to dehumanize a human person. In the 1990s, the Rwandan genocide, the Hutu people, in order to justify the eradication of Tutsis, called the Tutsi people cockroaches. They had to dehumanize human beings in order to justify their genocide. In early America, black slaves were considered three-fifths human, 60% human, and that could justify their enslavement. Today, children in the womb, what do we refer to them as? Fetal tissue. Not human beings, fetal tissue. When we look at this scene, this legion of unclean spirits, it is has the sole aim and purpose of utterly desecrating, eradicating, and destroying the God-given image of this poor man, destroying his body, cutting himself, consigning him to isolation, misery, and despair. It's the utter equivalent of the brutality of hell itself. The power, the vileness, the destructive force is concentrated in this man, and that's the scene that Jesus is walking into. And now don't be fooled. We may not see demonic possession like this today. That might be one of your first questions. Why don't we see stuff like this happen today? I don't exactly know. But when we look at this, what we can see for sure is it is always the goal and purpose of Satan and sin to utterly destroy the person that it takes hold of. There is no such thing as innocent sin or you know, an innocent taste of evil. There is no such thing as an innocent click on a website where you might know where it's going to lead. There is no such thing as an innocent conversation with someone who's not your spouse. There's no such thing as an innocent lie or innocent outburst of anger. There's no such thing as an innocent sin. There's no such thing as an innocent taste of evil because sin and Satan's goal in every instance is to utterly destroy those whom it grips. And if it's not in this life, it will destroy ultimately in eternal life in the agony of hell. 
So that's the scene Jesus is walking into. It's not pretty. He's walking into something that's destructive, vile, utterly powerful. Something that that we're not even used to today. He's seeing the utter powerful dominion of darkness. And into this scene, Jesus comes, second point, to bring salvation, to bring deliverance to this man. Remember what happened right before coming to the country of the Gerasenes? Chad left us off in the Gospel of Mark with Jesus calming this violent storm that had started over the Sea of Galilee. This violent tempest, this violent storm overtakes the boat that the disciples and Jesus are in. And Jesus' disciples see Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat. And they they cry out to Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you want to save us? We're about to be destroyed. Don't you care? And Jesus wakes up and we're told that he rebuked the sin in the sea by saying, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And then the disciples, after they see Jesus display this miraculous power, what we see is they're filled with great fear and they say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus has This power over nature, over the wind, over the sea. And the same voice that in the beginning said, let there be light. Or the same voice that said, you know, let the waters be below and the sky above. That same voice is in the boat with the disciples. And their response is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And what we see coming off of that is that the same power of Jesus that saves the disciples from this powerful storm is about to save this man from the powerful, destructive force of Satan. So you see, verse 6, Jesus steps out of the boat and something astonishing happens. Verse 6, when Jesus was seen from afar by this demoniac, he ran and fell down before him. Psychologists say, uh, you probably are aware of this, right? When somebody is posed with a threat, right? Say you see a moose in the forest. Our minds and our bodies go into one of two responses, fight or there's a third option in this story. See, this demoniac, this demon-possessed man sees Jesus from afar and his response isn't bow up and fight for his survival. It's not, I'm going to run away in the opposite direction of Jesus. Instead, this demoniac sees Jesus and instead he forfeits. Do you see that? Not fight, not flight. He forfeits before Jesus. He comes and he falls down before Jesus. Then verse seven, we read that there's another response and crying out with a loud voice, he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. You remember the disciples, remember what they said when they saw Jesus' power? They said, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But what the disciples fail to see, that this is the most high God, the true God, the demons see clearly. They they know who this is. They say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That title, Most High God, it's used throughout the Old Testament. It's used four times, but almost in every single instance, it's used in recognition of foreign nations or non-Jewish people who see Jesus and they recognize, or they see God and they recognize his greater power. So Numbers chapter 26, there's this false prophet. His name is Balaam. 
And he's hired by another king named Balak. And he's hired by this king to come and give a curse over the Israelite people because Balak is afraid of the Israelite people. So Balaam, this false prophet, he comes and he's going to do this for Balak. But what happens in the story is Balaam actually sees a real vision of the real God. (laughs) He sees the real God for the first time. And he says, now that I've seen a vision of the real God, he calls him for what he is. He calls him a vision of the most high God. Or Daniel. Daniel, you know the story Daniel in the lion's den. There's a story right before the lion's den sequence where there's this man named Nebuchadnezzar and he tries to make himself God. So he erects this golden statue in the middle of the town square and he makes people fall down and worship it. But Nebuchadnezzar says anyone who doesn't worship this statue is going to get thrown into a fiery furnace. Well, three men decide not to do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Or uh, what's the name in Veggie Tales, right? You watched it. I know you did. Anyway, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they forget to do it. They don't do it. You guys come up with the name yet? Okay. (laughs) They don't do it. They get thrown into the fiery furnace and they get delivered the next day. And what's Nebuchadnezzar's response? He comes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and he says, did the most high God deliver you? He recognizes there's a greater God. He recognizes there is a God over him. In Genesis, though, you get probably the closest view of this title, most high God. It comes from Genesis chapter 14. Abram is surrounded by all these Gentile nations. They're serving foreign gods, but Abraham has this mission. He's been called by God. And Abraham is visited by this man named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham by saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So you see, in each instance that that title is used, most high God, There's a recognition, there's an acknowledgement that the God of the Bible is the true God, the one in whom all power, all glory reside, more powerful than the false gods of Balaam, more powerful than the false god Nebuchadnezzar, and more powerful than the false gods of the nation surrounding Abraham. And this demoniac, this utterly powerful and destructive legion sees Jesus for who he is. He sees Jesus, son of the most high God, and he forfeits. He knows who he's encountering. And he is finally subdued and he's overpowered by Jesus. And then I love what Jesus does here. This demon recognizes the power of Jesus, but then Jesus demonstrates his power. You see it in verses 10 through 13. We read that after this demoniac begs Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged Jesus saying, send us into the pigs, let us us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs and the herd numbering 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. Anybody here like bacon? You know, one of the questions I always hear when you read this story is like, why, why would Jesus do that? Think of the poor pigs, right? Anybody here like bacon? All right, then you can't write me if you like bacon. If, if you do like bacon, and, or if you've never ate bacon, you can write me and ask about the poor pigs. But if you've had bacon, your, your email will get deleted promptly. 
2,000 of these pigs, they, they rush down this steep bank, they're plunged into the sea, and you scratch your head, what is the deal? Why destroy these pigs? Well, I actually think there's a pretty obvious example of what's going on here. I think that's what's going on is this destruction of these demons prefigures the final and ultimate destruction of evil, Satan, and the powers of hell when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. You actually see this in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, Jesus has triumphed. Jesus has brought his kingdom on earth. And one of the last acts of judgment we read, the devil who had deceived the church was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. You watch movie trailers when you go to the movies and a movie trailer, it shows you of this movie that's going to come out later on, right, to a theater near you. It foreshadows a main thing that's to come. That's what's happening here. Jesus sends this unclean legion into these unclean pigs who plunge to destruction as a trailer, as a foreshadow of what is to come when Jesus returns in power to judge evil, to judge sin and death and Satan himself, and he will destroy all darkness and evil finally and fully. But there's a second thing that this prefigures or that this is a trailer of and foreshadows, and this is very important. The destruction of these pigs illustrates something very important in the Bible, that in order for God to destroy sin, in order for God to destroy evil and darkness, and in order to save sinful humanity, something has to die. Something has to die. It, it's not pretty. It, it, it's not beautiful. It, it's actually oftentimes obscene and grotesque, something has to die in order for humankind to be forgiven of sin in order to have evil removed from them. And that's the remarkable thing about these pigs is it doesn't just foreshadow the coming judgment of Jesus at his return. It also foreshadows what Jesus himself will endure when he takes sin and evil upon himself on the cross. See, in order for Jesus to destroy sin, Satan, and darkness, something has to die. And Jesus, in order to save and deliver sinners, would take all the powerful, all the vile, all the destructive force of sin and evil upon himself as a sacrifice in order to save sinners like us. It's the only way for God to destroy sin without destroying the sinner. R.C. Sproul, he's a, he's a great Bible teacher. He actually died a couple of years ago. Tragic loss. But he told this story of one time when he was sharing a lecture, this very idea of what's known as the atonement. God atoning for our sins by placing our sin on Jesus and pouring out his wrath on Jesus so we could be forgiven. And he's giving this lecture, and he's very young at this point. He had just received his doctorate. He's given this lecture to a group of academics and he's talking about the atonement. And one person, he says, gets up in the back of the room and violently stands up and says, that idea is primitive and obscene. <laughs> and 
Arsys probably doesn't know what to do, right? It's just a lecture. He's never encountered something like this before. And he looks at the man, doesn't exactly know what to do with this. And in order to gather his thoughts, he says, repeat to me what you said. What was it again you said? He said, no, 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 I, I don't need to share. He said, no, 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 please, please, I, I want to hear what you said. He said, your idea of the cross is primitive and obscene. Narcisse Sproul kind of tries to collect his thoughts, and he said, you know what, now, now come to think about it, you are absolutely right. It is those are great adjectives to describe what's going on here. This, this is primitive. There's, there's nothing sophisticated about it or pretty about it. It is so crude and simple that anyone could understand it. You don't need to have an academic pedigree to understand that sin and evil need to be punished and judged in order to save humanity. It is utterly primitive. And he said, and when you think about it, you're right. It is obscene. The cross of Christ is utterly obscene. In the moment of his death, all the vileness and odiousness of our sin was concentrated in the person of Jesus. All of the sins that are obscene and graphic that we would never show anyone else. It's almost shocking and incomprehensible that the Son of God, Most High, would subject himself to such a terrible death for the evil and sin we commit. You are right. This is primitive. This is obscene. This scene of salvation, it is a foreshadow of the cross, the primitive and obscene death of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus himself became an object of destruction. He became an object of vile sin and evil. He was gripped by the destructive power of Satan. And as a result, Jesus could defeat sin without destroying sinners in the process. That's exactly what happens to this man. Did did you see? That's what happens to this demoniac as Jesus enters this scene to bring salvation. Remember, this man couldn't be subdued. He's like Ruger on my leash. He gets utterly, forcefully, powerfully breaks chains apart. He's gripped by the power of the devil himself. Then in verse 15, we read, now after Jesus comes, he's sitting there clothed in his right mind. This man's been utterly changed. This man who before begged Jesus, don't torment me, Jesus. Send me out of the country. Send me into the pigs. Now, verse 18, the man who had been possessed with the demons now is begging Jesus that he might be with him. Let me be with you, Jesus. I want to know you, Jesus. I want to relate to you, Jesus. This man has been saved. He's been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This once vile, unclean, possessed man has been delivered, saved by the power and mercy of Jesus. And friends, what this scene shows with great clarity is that even though sin and Satan mean to destroy us, Jesus means to deliver us from sin and destroy sin and Satan. That is Jesus' purpose. Even though sin and Satan seek to destroy us, to eradicate the image of God within you in this life and in the life to come, Jesus seeks to destroy and eradicate Satan and to change you. That's his purpose. 
And that is good news because that means there is no person, there is no situation, there is no sin so vile, so powerful, so distorted by evil that Jesus cannot deliver you from. There is none that Jesus cannot save you from, even the vile forces of hell itself. This reminds me of when I used to live in Nashville. I heard this remarkable story. There was a player for the Tennessee Titans, the football team, and he was a member at a sister church that we were a part of. And this man had been married for several years and he had an affair on his wife. And he was riddled with guilt about this. Their marriage had had severe tension because of it. And he decided he was going to leave his wife. He was going to move on. He was going to uh, issue her divorce papers. But one of the elders of the church that he was at caught wind of this. So he called him into the church and they went into a small room a small office in the room, in the building, and he set up a chair, and he had the football player sit across from him, and the door was behind the elder, and he said, I heard what you're going to do, and there is absolutely no way you are going to leave this room until you tell me that you believe Jesus can change your marriage. And this football player, right, he's like 6'4", 240 pounds. He stands up and he tries to leave the room. And this elder stands in front of the door. And I'm not going to repeat the words that this football player said, but he used four-letter words saying, get out of the way of the door. And the man said, I will not leave. And you will not leave this room until you believe Jesus can change your marriage. And the man after many hours with this elder, many years of counseling, years of prayer, straining by God's grace, trying to sacrifice his life for his wife, confessing his sins to his wife, confessing his sins to God, seeking sexual purity, seeking to make right what he had made wrong, asking Jesus for power, asking Jesus for grace, asking Jesus for mercy. This man, this six foot four, 250 pound tower, powerful might of a man submitted and forfeited his life to Jesus. And that man was delivered. Jesus saved and changed that man. Jesus saved and changed this demoniac because that is Jesus' purpose. When Satan and sin aim to destroy you, your marriage, your family, your reputation, even your very eternity, Jesus means to de- destroy sin and Satan and to deliver you. That's what he came to do. And he can still do it today. I heard this from another pastor. He was telling the story of Carl Henry. Carl Henry was the first editor of Christianity Today. And you have to know about Christianity Today is it was kind of the counter voice to the Christian century. The Christian century was more of the academic. It was the more uh, theologically liberal and the more modern uh, voice of Christianity. Well, Christianity Today wanted to be the evangelical voice. So Carl Henry is doing an interview with this man named Carl Barth. He got invited to this luncheon with 200 other prominent church leaders to interview Karl Barr. And, you know, Carl Henry stands up and he's standing before this towering figure. Karl Barr was one of the greatest theologians in the 20th century. He said some remarkable things, but he's standing before this towering giant, Karl Barr. And he says, my name's Carl Henry. I'm editor of Christianity Today. And Bart responds back, did you say Christianity Today? or Christianity yesterday. 
And everybody starts laughing, chuckling, giggling. And Carl Henry, without skipping a beat, said, Christianity yesterday, today, and forever, just as Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus still who had power to heal a demoniac, to cast out a demon of a legion of demons from a demoniac thousands of years ago is still the same today. He can forgive you. He can transform you. He can change you today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Some of us are gripped by the power of pornography. You've tried to change. You've seeked You've sought accountability and you wonder, can anything ever change? Jesus still has the power to change by his mercy, by his grace. Some of us are gripped by constant discontentment. We're irritable, we're anxious, we're angry at the hand God gave us in life. Jesus can deliver you. He has the power to change your life. Some of us are gripped in a marriage that seems utterly hopeless. There's no chance for it to change. Jesus can save your marriage. Others of us think, if you've known what I've done, if you, if you just knew what me or my spouse has done, then you would know Jesus has no mercy on me. No, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Into this scene, Jesus shows us the powerful side of the gospel, that what he came to do is to deliver a person who is so hopeless, so ingrained, so destroyed by sin and Satan that they seem utterly hopeless. Jesus has the power to save yesterday, today, and always. That is the God that Jesus comes to show us. And as we close, let's look just really briefly. There's two responses that happened to Jesus' salvation and his powerful deliverance here. We've already seen the response of the demoniac. You see that in verse 15 and 18. This man embraces Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus, wants to follow Jesus. Because following his salvation and deliverance, he realizes this is the most high God. He can deliver me. He is told by Jesus, you see this in verse 19, it's, it's really interesting. He, he has to be with Jesus and instead Jesus says, no, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis just how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled at the story. They marveled at the story. But there's another response. And you see this from the townspeople. They, the herdsmen, they run to the town. They come back. They tell what happened. That's verse 14. And then in verse 15, we read, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. See, Mark places these two responses side by side. He does it intentionally to have us consider, will you go with Jesus or do you want Jesus to go? Do you want to go with Jesus, the one who has the power to save, to experience his power to save, or do you want him to go? Do you want nothing to do with him? See, Jesus has the power to save. The question is, do you want to go with him? I'm going to close on this. Uh, there's this book, The Great Divorce. It's written by C.S. Lewis. And it's a really, uh, 
It's a really creative story. It's a story of a man who goes to hell. And there he sees people who are kind of on the brink of utterly entering hell in despair. Or they have this chance, this, this minor glimpse of a chance to maybe be redeemed and moved into the kingdom of light. And this man goes to hell and he encounters this conversation between this large angel who's sent from heaven and this man who's right on the brink of walking into hell. And this man has a red lizard on his shoulder. This red lizard is supposed to be symbolic of lust, and this lizard has great power over the man. He's constantly whispering into his ear, telling him, you know what? If I ever leave, you're going to be alone. If I ever leave, you're going to be destroyed. If you ever live without me, there's going to be no hope for you. I am your only hope. I'm your only comfort. And you can tell this man is just in agony. He hates the lizard. He wants the lizard dead, but there's this other part of him that doesn't exactly want the lizard to die either. So the angel approaches this man and this angel's from heaven and he says to him, I can kill that lizard for you. I can do it. By the power of Jesus, I can do it. I can reach out my hand. I can destroy that lizard. It will hurt, I promise you. It's gonna hurt. But you will be free. You will finally be free. The lizard retorts back to the angel. Don't listen to him, he's lying. He doesn't wanna save you, he wants to destroy you. And the man, you can tell he's, he's in this tension point. He's, he's right between this tension point. And he's wondering, am I going to do it? Am I going to allow this angel? Am I going to allow the power of Jesus to destroy this thing that's destroying me and dragging me into hell? And finally, he closes his eyes. He says, do it, do it, kill the lizard. And the angel reaches out and he touches the lizard. And the lizard falls down off the man's shoulder. And what the author says, it's utterly remarkable. He says that lizard then was transformed into this white stallion like nobody had ever seen. <laughs> See, what was utterly destroying this man, gripping him in his vile destruction, is changed in that man as a story of God's glory and power by the power of Jesus Christ. That Man was finally freed from the destructive power of sin, Satan, and evil. And that's what Jesus offers, what he came to do. That's the side of the gospel we need to see. And the question before us is this. Do you want to go with Jesus? Or do you want Jesus to go? It will hurt, but it will save your life. And you will be free. Let's pray. Jesus, you are majestic. You are powerful. You are god most high. You have the power of God Almighty in your hands. You have the power to save. And Jesus, we see that truth most clearly at the cross where you took all the vileness, all the destructive power of sin and evil into yourself to be destroyed in our place so that we could be delivered from sin, Satan, and death. God, we stand in awe of your power in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we pray, make us people who respond to this. Make us people who hear of your power, who hear of your glory and your might. And we long to follow you, who want to declare the power and the glory of your name. God, transform us by your power, by your spirit. Jesus, for those of us who are walking in darkness, walking in the grip of sin and Satan, would you free us? It's what you came to do in your mercy and your grace. By your power, deliver us. God, we know it's gonna hurt. We know it's gonna require change. 
but we need you. You're our only hope. So would you do that for us now? We pray this in the name of Jesus, to the power of your glory, amen.